On one of the most famous hikes in England, there's a walk along a high ridge in the Lake District called Striding Edge. Now, there's not a lot of high or challenging mountains in England, but Striding Edge, as you can see, is actually pretty dangerous. Tom Wright explains the difficulty about Striding Edge is that it's so narrow and high. At many points, you can look down past your right foot into one valley a thousand feet below, past your left foot into another equally far below. A cool head and a steady nerve are what's needed up there. And the path, well, the path naturally jerks and jogs its way along, twisting this way and that, keeping to the top of the ridge because that's the only way forward. A pace to the right or a pace to the left or a pace straight ahead when the ridge twists to the right or left, and you'll be over the edge. Have any of you ever done striding edge? No. <laughs> well, in, in our passage in Galatians today, the Apostle Paul is walking a striding edge. Remember, he's writing to communities of people living in a place called Galatia. Uh, people who have decided in, in Galatia here to, to follow Jesus after Paul went to them, to their cities, and told them about Jesus. But since then, these communities who formed um, to follow Jesus together have now been visited by some Jewish Christian teachers who claim that they have now come with the true gospel directly from the big mother church in Jerusalem, where the original apostles who knew Jesus personally are, And these Jerusalem teachers are calling into question both Paul's message and the trustworthiness of Paul himself. They're claiming that Paul got his beliefs about Jesus mixed up, either because he didn't know any better or because he was purposefully watering down the message to make it more appealing. What the Jerusalem teachers have pointed out is that Jesus was Jewish that he's the Jewish Messiah. The Jews, of course, were God's people. And so these teachers are arguing that if if the non-Jews, if the Gentiles want to follow Jesus and become part of God's people, then they need to become Jewish as well. And this starts, for the men, with getting circumcised, which is the sign of being a Jew. Well, the Galatians are taking these Jerusalem teachers seriously. They're seriously considering getting circumcised. They're men anyway. And this has placed Paul in a very difficult position, on on a striding edge, so to speak. And he he writes this letter of Galatians as a response to the situation. And in this response, one false step too far to the right or too far to the left could be disastrous. Over the past couple weeks, we saw in Galatians chapter 1 that Paul emphatically insisted that he did not receive his message about Jesus, his gospel, from any human being or or tradition, including the Jerusalem church. Paul, rather, was completely independent. He received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ, who revealed himself to Paul in a divine revelation. So, Paul was claiming authority in chapter 1 from God himself, not from any human being. But at the same time, Paul realizes that to argue this way is dangerous. 
Because it, it sounds like he's, he's a lone ranger, a, a renegade, some quack out there who's had some heavenly vision and, and who was doing his own thing in, in contradiction to the rest of the church and, and especially in contradiction to the apostles in Jerusalem who knew Jesus personally. This could lead to a split in the broader Christian movement, Paul realizes, where there would be Gentile churches who followed Paul and claimed he was right, that he'd heard correctly from God. And, and then there would be other churches, predominantly Jewish, plus any Gentiles who could be persuaded to become Jewish, and they would be aligned with the apostles in Jerusalem. And this kind of disunity would be totally out of keeping with Jesus' desire for his people to be unified. It would reflect badly on Jesus, and, and this controversy would hurt the early Christian mission to share about Jesus in the Roman world. But also, you can bet that a split would ensure that the Gentile church would be looked down on by the Jewish church as a second-class stepchild. After all, the Jews were God's people first. They had Jesus. He was a Jew. They had the apostles. They were Jews. Who should know better how to follow God than the Jews? Besides, Jews already looked down on Gentiles for being unholy, for being sinful and ignorant in the things of God. And the Jerusalem teachers in Galatia are accusing Paul of, of just allowing the Gentiles to go on in, in their sinful ways. So while Paul has, has defended his message with an, an adamant insistence that he got it straight from God, straight from Jesus, Paul knows that to argue this way puts him in danger of plumbing over the side of the striding edge. And so in chapter 2, he's now going to balance it out. He, he points out now that even though he got his message straight from God, his message is actually no different from the message of what the Jerusalem church believes. To make this point in Galatians 2, Paul now tells the story of what I'll call the, the summit on church unity, which Paul attended sometime back evidently with Peter, James, and John, who were the key apostles at the time, leaders of the Jerusalem church. Paul explains that, that he and these other church leaders came out of that summit in complete unity as to what the gospel message is, what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. And this summit proved, Paul claims, that Paul is actually in complete agreement with Jerusalem and with the rest of true Christianity. What Christ revealed to Paul about the gospel is the same as what the apostles understood from Jesus about the gospel. And so it's only the Jerusalem teachers who have gone to Galatia who are wrong, and any who believe like them, and as we'll see, there are others. Yet Paul has to be careful how he states all this, how he argues this out. Because if he's going to argue that Jerusalem has approved his message, then his opponents might counter and ask, but you just said you're so sure that your gospel's from God and you have authority independent of Jerusalem, so why in the world did you go to Jerusalem seeking approval from your gospel? Do you see Paul's dilemma? It, it, he's arguing on the one hand that, that he's got his message straight from God and he doesn't need any human approval. And yet, on the other, that his message has been approved by the Jerusalem church and its leaders. 
He's on a striding edge. He's got to choose his words and form his arguments very carefully. One false step to the right or to the left, and he's going to do himself in. And all of the Gentiles he's introduced to Jesus will suffer as a result. So as Paul introduces the the story of the unity summit in Jerusalem that he attended, right off, he's got to address the question, why? Why, Paul? If you're so independent, if you're so confident that you got your gospel straight from God, then, then why in the world did you go up to Jerusalem to get approval for your message from the leadership there? And Paul's answer is twofold. The first part's in the beginning of verse 2. He says, I went in response to a revelation, a prophecy. In other words, it was God's idea that I go to Jerusalem, not mine. I didn't go to Jerusalem because I had personal doubts about my message. I went because God told me to go. Now, for those of you who want to go a little deeper into this, you can write down uh, here Acts 11.28. Because there's a good chance that that was the revelation that Paul was referring to. Acts 11.28. You can look it up later. But let's pause here for a second. As we look at Paul and the way he handles this, Notice how in his whole ministry, how God-reliant Paul is here. He's not figuring out his beliefs all by himself. He's not trying to work out his problems just with his own ingenuity. He's always waiting and relying on God, and God is guiding him and directing him on how he should work through these problems. And boy, don't we stand to learn from his example. Okay, then Paul gives... The second reason, then, um, that he goes to the Jerusalem summit, and this is found at the end of verse 2. Paul says, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Paul went to Jerusalem to present his gospel to the apostles there for their approval because he was afraid that otherwise his mission to the Gentiles might be in vain. Now, Paul is not worried that he's been preaching the wrong gospel. But rather, he's worried that without the support of the Jerusalem church, his entire work among the Gentile churches might be undone by those who are criticizing his gospel. He wanted to make sure that he had the backup and the approval of the Jerusalem church, and God led him to go and get it. Does that make sense? In other words, what's going on in here is not that Paul's afraid that he's been teaching the wrong thing. It's rather he's afraid that those criticizing what he's teaching will undo his work. And so if the communities he's introducing to Jesus are going to survive, if they're going to remain true to God and to the gospel, then he needs the support of the well-respected Jerusalem leaders. Yes, there were politics in the church even back then. And as we move on to verses 3 to 5, we, we then find out in more detail what the threat was that Paul was facing when he went to the Jerusalem summit. Even before the problems in Galatia began, there were other Jewish Christians who were threatening to destroy Paul's work. The, the Jerusalem teachers in Galatia are not the first teachers to criticize Paul for, for letting the Gentiles follow Jesus without requiring them be, to become Jewish. There there were others in the past. They're often called Judaizers. And evidently, some of these Judaizers had had been raising a stink about one of Paul's team members called Titus. 
Titus was a young Gentile man who had believed in Jesus and was now assisting Paul in his mission. But Titus wasn't circumcised. And therefore, according to these Judaizers, Titus was not fully a Christian. And so they want to know, what in the world was Paul doing letting Titus be in leadership on his team? Well, this controversy about Titus came up at the summit meeting in Jerusalem. We don't know whether it arose before Paul's trip to Jerusalem, and that's part of what prompted Paul to go, or whether this controversy arose in Jerusalem at the summit itself. But either way, one thing is clear. In the whole debate about what the gospel was, Titus served as a sort of test case, a poster child for the debate. Lucky him, right? And the emotions were were running really high on both sides of this issue. Of course, we only have Paul's side of the story, which is the side, in the end, approved by the Holy Spirit and included in God's word. But there were two sides. There there was a debate in the church. And and look at how Paul describes these Judaizers who are arguing that Titus has to be circumcised and to become Jewish. First of all, he calls them false believers. False believers. Verse 4. Now, Paul's not normally an uncharitable guy. But, but of these people, he says, they claim to be Christians, but they're not. They're, they're false. They are what Jesus might call wolves in sheep's clothing, coming in to destroy the flock. Second, in verse 4, Paul says that they've infiltrated our ranks to spy on us. This is the language of deception and espionage. These People are crooked, Paul says. They're duplicitous. They have false and evil motives. They look good on the outside. They, they claim to have good intentions. They, they might have all the right Christian credentials from the right churches and seminaries and the backing of the big-name Christian leaders, but really they are false. Boy, no wonder Jesus told us we, we need to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. False teachers can be really hard to spot sometimes, but Paul is, is so steeped and stewed in, in God's truth. He's, he's listening so closely to God's voice that he has no trouble spotting a counterfeit when he sees one. And his reaction against these false believers in, is intense and, and uncompromising. In verse 5, he says, we did not give in to them for a moment. But, but why take such a hard line, Paul? I mean, you always preach love. Why, why make such a big deal of this? Why, why not work for a compromise and, and uh, smooth over your differences for the sake of keeping the unity? Why not just get Titus circumcised and then everyone's happy? Well, except maybe for Titus for a couple weeks, but, you know, he'll heal. Um, what harm would it do? Well, there's at least three reasons that Paul, in this case, is so vehement and uncompromising on this issue. You know, it's a mark of real wisdom to know when to compromise for the sake of unity and when to fight to the death. And and Paul has that wisdom to know the difference. And let's pay attention because we can learn something very important from Paul here. Because according to Paul in verse 4, this matter of circumcision is the difference between slavery and freedom. And so three reasons here. The first and the most obvious reason that Paul is so passionately unyielding on this issue, as we've already seen in chapter 1, is that Paul knew he had received the true gospel directly from God. The the risen Jesus himself had revealed to Paul what the true gospel was and wasn't. And so to believe in any other 
gospel was to believe in a false message which wasn't from God. The second reason that Paul feels so strongly on this issue is, is a practical and a personal one having to do with Paul's career as a missionary. You see, Paul's whole purpose in life is, is wrapped up in his calling from God to be an apostle sent from God to bring the message about Jesus to the Gentiles. And Paul, excuse me, has already sacrificed greatly for the sake of this mission. He's given up his career prospects, his dignity and his respect among his fellow Jews, and whatever wealth he had. Not to mention that he's endured deprivations and and torture and all kinds of trials for, for the sake of the call to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. And Paul knows that if the Gentiles now have to be circumcised before they can become full Christians, that this will seriously torpedo his mission. Because circumcision is part of a package. To be circumcised is basically to become Jewish and to agree to keep the Old Testament law. Now, if God wanted it that way, fine. But since God didn't put that requirement on the Gentiles, Paul can't afford to have this requirement put on them by anyone else, even for the best religious intentions. Because this additional requirement would keep many, many Gentiles from coming to Jesus Christ, Paul realizes. You have to realize that at this point in history, Christianity wasn't a separate religion. It was part of Judaism. And so the Roman world, or sorry, the Gentile world, uh, Roman and otherwise, Greek, uh, looked at Jewish Christians and um, they looked at Jews who weren't Christians and they said, same difference, more or less. Those Jewish people. They considered them, um, in general, Gentiles considered Jews to be barbarians. They looked down on them. And, And so why would a cultured, civilized Gentile want to become a barbarian? If to follow Jesus, Gentiles had to be circumcised like Jews, had to uh, keep the kosher food laws like Jews, had to keep the Sabbath and other Jewish festivals, most Gentiles would say, thanks, but no thanks. Keep your Jewish Jesus. And so Paul knows that to add circumcision to the gospel would keep untold multitudes of Gentiles from coming to Jesus. In fact, it would probably have meant that that most of us aren't sitting here today. And Paul says, no way. My whole calling to bring the news about Jesus to the Gentiles is at stake here. Now, Now, there's an important lesson for us here. And that is not to fall into the trap of thinking that we're more holy, we're more righteous if, if we make sacrifices for God even beyond what God has asked us to make. You know, if God asks us to do X, that's great. So doing X and Y, that must be even better, right? Even if God hasn't asked us to do Y. I was talking to someone recently about this, um, about this sort of attitude, about uh, some of their friends who, I, I think, I forget the details, but I think it was that uh, maybe the friends had decided not to eat sweets. Not for health reasons, but because sweets taste good. And they thought somehow that, that giving up something good must please God. Even though God has never asked us to do that. 
Now, if you want to give up sweets for health reasons, that's actually a really good idea. Or, or if you want to do that as an act of, of devotion, maybe during Lent, privately, between you and God, and, and you don't tell anyone you're doing it, fine. But here's the problem as soon as you make it public. As soon as you communicate to others that if you really want to please God, then you go above and beyond. You, you don't eat sweets or, or don't do whatever else it is. Fill in the, the blank. As soon as you do that, you have just set up an obstacle for a whole bunch of people to come and follow Jesus. Because now they look at you and they think that to follow Jesus means that they should really give up chocolate or whatever. (laughs) And if they don't give it up like you do, then they're really second-class Christians. They're not as good as you are. And the church has done this over the years time and again, right? We, real Christians don't listen to rock and roll. Real Christians don't smoke. I'm preaching at Peter this morning. <laughs> real Christians don't drink any alcohol, ever. Real Christians don't dance, right? <laughs> and, and do you ever wonder how many people were turned off to Jesus because of all those rules that God never made? All good things to avoid, right? But, but none of them required by God to avoid. And Paul says, no way, we are not going down that road. We're not setting up extra obstacles to people following Jesus because God has not set them up. Are you following me? And, and third, this leads to the third reason that Paul steadfastly refuses to allow Titus to be circumcised. And and this comes down to a basic theological principle. Allowing Titus to be circumcised would set a precedent. If Paul allows Titus to be circumcised, then the precedent is set that all Gentiles must be circumcised. And if circumcision is added as a requirement for salvation, then the precedent is set for other things to be added as well. And Paul has a fundamental theological problem with adding anything to Christ. To add anything at all to the gospel, be it circumcision or anything else, and to say that a person can't be fully saved or can't fully enjoy a relationship with God without that thing is to say that Christ's death and resurrection alone are not enough to save us and to reconcile us to God. Let me say that again. To add anything at all to the gospel is to say that Christ's death and resurrection alone are not enough to save us and to reconcile us to God. In other words, Paul's math reads like this. It's already up on the screen. To add anything else to Christ as a requirement for salvation or for a right relationship with God is actually to take away from Christ. It's to say that Christ by himself is not enough. To say that a Gentile has to be circumcised or or to keep the law to become a full Christian is to say that Christ's death wasn't good enough by itself. And Paul will have none of this. He insists that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has done all that is needed to save us and to bring us into a full relationship with God. We don't need to add anything else. And in fact, when we do add anything else to Christ, we actually take away from Christ. 
And as Paul puts it in verse 4, when we add anything else to Christ, we bring ourselves into slavery. Freedom. If we could have the next slide, Luke. Freedom is found in Christ alone. Christ plus anything else, Paul says, leads to slavery. It's bringing yourself under the control of of laws and works which have no power to save us. And Paul has the worst possible things to to say um, to those so-called Christians who, who would tell you that you need to add anything to faith in Christ to enjoy a full saving relationship with God. Whether it be circumcision that has to be added, or the Ten Commandments, or a certain experience of the Holy Spirit, or uh, joining a certain church, or voting for a certain political party, or cleaning up your language, or changing your appearance, or giving up smoking, or popular music, or anything else, to add anything at all to faith in Christ is to take away from Christ. And let's not ever find ourselves in the dangerous position of doing that. Now listen up, because I want to make a very important point about this. The math of Christ alone applies not only to coming into a relationship with God, it also applies to staying in. Your relationship with God from the day you became a Christian to the day you die is based solely on Christ. One person put it this way, Once you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't do anything to make God love you anymore. And you can't do anything to make God love you any less. Let me say that again. Once you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't do anything to make God love you anymore. And you can't do anything to make God love you any less. Having personal devotions... Spending time with God, praying, meditating, won't make God love you anymore. Going to church won't make God love you anymore. Being a better husband or wife or friend won't make God love you more. Making sacrifices for God won't make God love you more. So if you're doing these things to try to be good enough for God or to get God to love you more, you can stop doing them right now. Just stop. Because our relationship with God is based on Christ alone. And to add anything else is to take away from Christ and to put yourself in slavery. Is that a message some of us need to hear or what? Well, good, because we're going we're gonna to hear it a lot in the book of Galatians. Now listen carefully again. I'm not saying that we can live however we want and our relationship with God won't be affected. You're waiting for me to say that, right? <laughs> In fact, if, if you don't want Christ to totally and radically change your life, then don't put your faith in Christ. Let me say that again. <laughs> if you don't want Christ to totally and radically change your life, don't put your faith in him. Because Jesus wants to completely transform your life and your heart and your behavior. But all of that change that Jesus wants to bring flows from our relationship with God once we have one. 
It isn't necessary to earn a relationship with God. It isn't necessary to earn God's love. As a father, I'm pleased when my kids draw me a picture or, or they clean their room when I ask them to. And likewise, God delights in our good behaviors and, and our devotion with him. And, and spending time with God and, and pleasing God develops our intimacy and our closeness with God. It begins to change our characters. But, but doing these good deeds doesn't make us any more or less God's children. Any more than it makes my children, my kids, if they do or don't clean up their stuff when I ask them to. Dirty room, still my kids. Clean room, my kids just the same. And any parent worth their salt will, will love their children whether their children obey them or not. It's Christ alone and our faith in him that makes us God's children, fully loved and accepted by God. Nothing else is needed. And in fact, anything else actually takes away and changes us from free children to slaves in bondage. And so Paul's urgent message to the Galatians and God's message to us through this passage is this. At all costs, don't let yourselves be enslaved by anyone, including yourself. <laughs> Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone is freedom. Anything else is slavery. Not only Paul, but Peter, James, and John, the other key apostles who were at that summit on church unity in Jerusalem, they all agreed on this, Paul says. This is a bedrock principle of utmost importance that, that we as Christians must stand on without compromise. There are a lot of things we can bend on that we can be gracious about and for the sake of unity, but this is not one of them. Our relationship with God is based on Christ alone. So let's never subtract from Christ by adding anything to him. Let's pray. God, it is within our very human nature to want to earn, to want to contribute in this most important matter of being worthy. We want to um, make ourselves worthy. We want to make ourselves right. And yet, you've told us that you're not satisfied with any of that. But that you loved us. And so you would send Jesus in love. Jesus, you would fully embrace giving yourself as a sacrifice. Um, to make us worthy, to make us right. And you've offered it to, us, it to us as a gift and said, don't add anything to this, just receive it. Receive me and I will completely transform your life. I pray that we could let go. Those of us who've been trying to somehow be a little less bad, a little more good, to try a little harder, God, to get you to notice us, to get you to love us. 
I pray this morning that we could quit. That we could just quit trying and rest in your love. And God, I pray from that place, then as we cling to Jesus, as we learn to follow him, Jesus, that you would radically and completely transform and change our hearts, our lives, our church, and through us, this world, that your goodness might spread and be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name, amen.